Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 11, 2 Samuel chapter 7 continued. Well, 2 Samuel chapter 7 is a theological feast. It contains some principles and attributes of God that seem plain enough, even familiar for us, but were apparently not as obvious to David and his prophet Natan and the Israelite population in general. Rather, as is normal for humans, they saw Jehovah's nature through the lens of their times and the more or less common culture of their era. They had some things right. They had some things wrong. But God seems to have been very patient with them as as over and over He teaches them about spiritual matters and, and about His nature by presenting the lessons in various ways until hopefully they're understood and taken to heart at just the right moment. So to begin today's lesson, I want to confront you with a largely unnoticed problem that David and Israel had that is virtually identical to one that we face today. Do you think that because we're 3,000 years advanced from David's day that we grasp all that God is? Have we finally got God figured out? Well, if we do then why is there such a vast disagreement between Jews and Gentiles about Yehovah? And there is an equally enormous schism among the 3,000 or so Christian denominations. Who's right? Can't all be right. Do you realize that the lens that you and I view God through is not only wrapped up in our 21st century worldview, but also in a uniquely American viewpoint. European Christians don't view God as we do. Eastern Orthodox Christians don't view God as we do. And our personal, individual God view is further modified by what part of America we were raised in. The Midwest farmlands, the progressive West Coast, the, the traditional South, right, and so on. It also matters whether or not you were raised in a, a Jewish or a Christian home, and if you were, which denomination or branch your family adhered to. Our personal experiences, even the generation we were born into, also plays a major role in our mental picture of God. But we just don't ever think about it. We just go forward on assumptions that are far more based on our cultural norms and religious doctrines and that are in agreement with our family and with our social circles than what God has actually said in His Word. In other words... We need to not only recognize and be understanding of David's and the Israelites' somewhat distorted views 
of who God is and how he operates. But we also need to understand that our own views of him have been distorted. And we are all in need of returning to the only source of truth about the Lord's attributes and mindset and about his expectations of us that are available. The Holy Scriptures. How our heart feels about it all is biblically irrelevant. And we are warned that our hearts are terribly deceitful. And yet, the modern teaching is mostly to follow our hearts and to leave the Bible to Bible scholars and to religious authorities. One of the major themes then in chapter 7 is this. How is God present with Israel? Or in David's mind, by what means and what form is God present with David? Thus the key words here are dwelling and traveling. The Middle Eastern cultural norms for that era were that a nation's God needed a building in which to dwell so that their God could be near to them. Thus the people of that culture built an appropriately grand temple for their God. But what happened when that nation's king led the army out to war? Perhaps he went on a diplomatic mission and and he ventured away from the temple where their God lived. Well, the king and his army were probably even outside their own nation. Therefore, outside the boundaries where their God's sphere of influence operated. Even more, their God was essentially confined back there in that temple, somewhat like a genie in a bottle. And in order for that God to travel and be with his worshipers, it was necessary that the God image, an idol, be transported by humans, usually priests, to wherever the king and his army went on expedition. This unquestioned but unconscious world view of the gods of 1000 BC was therefore generally how David and the Israelites viewed their God, Yehovah. Why would they think otherwise? We really don't see much in the Old Testament of the Israelites mocking or disagreeing with how the other nations viewed their spiritual sphere. We don't see the Hebrews explaining to their pagan neighbors the theological error of their mystical Babylon religions. How God's operated wasn't in question. Mankind had long ago settled that matter. The issue was primarily which God was the most potent and what was the proper way to worship Him. Thus the all-knowing Yehovah is able to look into David's mind, his heart, and see that on the one hand, David is feeling guilty and selfish for not providing his God with at least as nice place to live as, as he, the king, has. But on the other hand, David was also motivated by thinking that God needed a temple. And God needed mankind's intervention to help him get around. Not only that, 
But also David wanted God to be right there, nice and handy, when he needed his help. So the obvious solution was the same one that all cultures of that era utilized. Build a beautiful temple so that God would have a nice, comfortable place to live. And therefore, David had access to him on a moment's notice. Stuffed the genie into a grand bottle. The last thing David wanted was to have God out wandering about doing something else when David needed a consultation or or to have God left behind when he went out to battle. Thus getting the Ark of the Covenant, God's traveling box, back into his possession was David's first step. And to that whole line of erroneous human thought that so dominated David's era and before, here is what the Lord says through the prophet Nathan in uh, 2 Samuel 7, 7 through 9. Everywhere I traveled with all the people of Israel did I ever speak a word to any of the tribes of Israel whom I ordered to shepherd my people Israel asking, Why haven't you built me a cedar wood house? Therefore say this to my servant David that this is what Adonai Tsevaot says, I took you from the sheep yards, from following the sheep to make you chief over my people over Israel. I have been with you wherever you went. Let me be clear. Not everything David and the Israelites thought that they knew about Jehovah was wrong. But for the previous several centuries, the Torah had been slowly and steadily set aside. The priesthood had drifted into irrelevance. So divine truth was hard to come by. Now we moderns have no such excuse. And yet we find ourselves in the same condition as those ancient Israelites. While the king of Israel and the high priest were supposed to have a copy of the Torah, and and vowed as Israel's leaders that they would follow it, few of, if any, other folks had a Torah, since to create even one was a monumental and expensive effort. All they knew about God was what they learned from everyday life and from what their leaders told them. But for us, especially in the West... God's words available at virtually no cost, no danger. I don't know of a Christian or a Jew who doesn't have a Bible. Yet Christianity and Judaism both suffer the same condition as did Israel in David's day. What is taken for unassailable divine truth often turns out to be man-made traditions created by various religious leaders who are reacting to current political or social realities. What we take for God's enlightenment is often custom and political correctness 
that is dictated by behaviors and attitudes that characterize our contemporary culture and thereby allows us to blend in without undue notice. Not that this is necessarily accomplished consciously on our part. Rather, we often believe what we believe because that's just how it is. And to question it is to disturb an otherwise comfortable situation. We live in blissful self-assurance that all is well between ourselves and God. Besides, if all seems well, what would be the catalyst that it would even cause us to re-examine our cherished assumptions? See, this is just one of the several reasons why Bible scholars, Jewish and Christian, marvel at 2 Samuel chapter 7. It is truly a Torah within a Torah. Hidden just under the surface here is yet another attempt by Yehovah to present some important divine truths to the king of Israel and to his people in hopes of penetrating that thick veil of mankind's evil inclination which always prefers our ways to God's ways and our unfettered personal liberty of course as opposed to his commandments so let's reread a portion of 2nd Samuel chapter 7 to continue today's lesson open your bibles to 2nd Samuel chapter 7 we're going to start reading at verse 10 we'll go to the end 2nd Samuel chapter 7 verse 10 I will assign a place to my people Israel. I will plant them there so that they can live in their own place without being disturbed anymore. The wicked will no longer oppress them as they did at the beginning and as they did from the time I ordered judges to be over my people Israel. Instead, I will give you rest from all of your enemies. Moreover, Adonai tells you that Adonai will make you a house. When your days come to an end and you sleep with your ancestors, I will establish one of your descendants to succeed you, one of your own flesh and blood. I will set up his rulership. He will build a house for my name. I will establish his royal throne forever. I will be a father for him. He will be a son for me. If he does something wrong, I will punish him with, with a rod and, and blows, just as everyone gets punished. Nevertheless, my grace will not leave him as I took it away from Saul whom I removed from before you. Thus your house and your kingdom will be made secure forever before you. Your throne will be set up forever. Natan told David all of these words. He described this entire vision. And then David went in and sat before Adonai and said, Who am I, Adonai Elohim, and what is my family? that has caused you to bring me this far. Yet in your view, Adonai Elohim, even this was too small of a thing, so you have said, even said that your servant's dynasty will continue on into the distant future. This is indeed a teaching for a man, Adonai Elohim. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant intimately, Adonai Elohim. It is for the sake of your word and in accordance with your own heart that you have done all this greatness and revealed it to your servant. 
Therefore, you are great, Adonai, God. There is no one like you. There is no God beside you. Everything we have heard confirms that. Who can be compared with your people, with Israel? What other nation on earth did God set out to redeem and make into a people for Himself? You made yourself a reputation by doing for your land things that even for you are great and terrifying. For the sake of your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, from other nations, from their gods. You set up your people for yourself as your people forever. And you, Adonai, became their God. So now, Adonai God, establish forever the word you have spoken to your servant and his house. Do what you have promised. May your name be magnified forever so that it will be said, Adonai Tsevaot is God over Israel, and the dynasty of your servant David will be set up in your presence. You, Adonai Tsevaot, God of Israel, have disclosed to your servant, I will build you a house. This is why your servant has the courage to pray this prayer to you. Now, Adonai Elohim, you alone are God. Your words are truth. You have made this wonderful promise to your servant. So, may it please you to bless the family of your servant and thereby cause it to continue forever in your presence. For you, Adonai Elohim, have said it. May your servant's family be blessed forever by your blessing. The Lord says that contrary to David building him a house, that he will build David a house. This is not literal. It's a play on words. House in Hebrew is bait. And it means a number of things. First, it can be a dwelling place, just as we typically think of a house. or a, It's a place of residence. It can also refer to a place where a certain activity, secular or religious, is known to take place. A house of prostitution. And in another sense, it can mean a family. It can mean a dynasty. Here, while David is thinking in terms of constructing a building... The Lord is thinking in terms of constructing a permanent dynasty. So in verse 12, Yehovah tells David that after he dies, the Lord will establish an everlasting line of rulers of Israel from David's family. It's, it's interesting and informative that the words used to speak of David's death are when your days come to an end and you sleep with your ancestors. The honorable death of a righteous man and the aftermath are couched in words that reflect the understanding of death and the afterlife in the Middle East and the entire known world of that era. It's only that what the Israelites do not appear to have known yet is that the place where the righteous Hebrews resided after their physical death was not Sheol, but Abraham's bosom. Abraham's bosom 
was where the righteous dead waited for the Messiah to come. And through His own death, cleanse them to a far higher degree of purity than their own pious behavior ever could, and thus give them passage out of this underground chamber into heaven. And so verse 12 begins a section of this chapter that is prophetic in an even larger sense than it seems at first glance. The prophecy is this, that the Lord will set up one of David's sons to rule after David. This is a divine promise, so it will not fail. Several things will happen, including the building of a house, a bait for the Lord by this son of David. Now what we need to see is that this is a prophecy for both the near future and the far future for David. As is so typical of biblical prophecy, this foretold event will happen and then it will happen again. The key word in these next several verses is forever. In Hebrew there are two phrases that are properly translated into forever in English. Ad olam and le olam. The term means eternal, everlasting, no ending, perpetual. It can also mean until the end of the age. Sometimes it's translated that way. But in the Bible, the end of the age means until the end of the age of man. And that means that humans, we are no longer in our present form. Even the heaven and earth are exchanged for something else. So we, we don't have to wonder what the Bible means by the term forever. It means exactly how we commonly take it to mean. Now seven times the word forever is used in Second Samuel chapter 7. Seven is the number of perfection or perfect completion. It is perfect wholeness. The use of forever seven times is by no means an accident or coincidence. We must always pay close attention to biblical numerology because it carries great meaning with it. David's dynasty will rule forever. Meaning that there is a component to it that must go beyond the physical. David's dynasty brings about perfect completeness to God's plan of redemption. This, of course, speaks of Messiah, the gateway into everlasting redemption and rest. So verse 13 explains that David's son, and it doesn't say which son, will be allowed to build the Lord a temple. But notice an interesting nuance in the way this is explained. It does not say that David's son will build a house for me, for God. It says he will build a house for my name. 
It's God's name that will reside there, not God. It is God's reputation and in some mysterious sense His attributes that will dwell there. God the Father, Jehovah the Godhead, lives in heaven, not on earth. And certainly not in a temple built by human hands, even though the opposite is what all humans took for granted about the desire of the gods in that era. But the logical question arises, why can't David's or why can David's son build a temple, but David is prohibited from building him one? Why is that? This is a question that First Chronicles 22, which is a parallel account of this story, seems to provide some answers. So turn your Bibles to First Chronicles chapter 22. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it is page 1175. You got just like four verses to read. First Chronicles chapter 22. We're going to read from verses 7 through 10. My son, said David to Shlomo Solomon, my heart was set on building a house for the name of Adonai my God. But a message from Adonai came to me. You have shed blood, much blood, and fought great wars. You are not to build a house for my name because you have shed so much blood on the earth in my sight. But you will have a son who will be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all his enemies that surround him, for his name is to be Shlomo. And during his reign I will give peace and quiet to Israel. It is he who will build a house for my name. He will be my son. I will be his father. I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. David shed much blood. He was a warrior. And so Jehovah would not allow David to build the Lord a temple. However, his son... Solomon, Shlomo, which means peace because it's taken from the root word Shalom, will be allowed to build the temple. David won the kingdom through great bloodshed. And Solomon maintained the kingdom in peace and prosperity. Notice also in 1 Chronicles that the temple is not for the Lord Himself to dwell in, but for who? His name. Now, Second Samuel chapter seven, verse fourteen. Look at it; adds even more fascinating information. The Lord says that He will be the father for David's offspring, and that the offspring will be a son to the father. The mind spins as we think about all the ramifications. The first one that comes to mind is that Yeshua is called the Son and God is His Father. Yet the phrase, 
I will be a father to him and he will be a son for me is a well-attested adoption formula in the Bible. When a man adopted a boy child, whether, whether it was a relative or somebody from outside of his family, these were the words that were spoken as a more or less a, as a vow to seal the change in status of this relationship. One of the great examples of this, and I think very appropriate for this circumstance, is when the patriarch Jacob adopted Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, away from Joseph. Why would Jacob do such a strange thing? How must Joseph have felt having this forced upon him? It wasn't terribly unusual for a head of household to adopt the children of a deceased brother. But to adopt away your grandchildren from their own living father who's standing there in front of you and for no stated purpose. And here we find the Lord doing a similarly strange thing in saying that David's son will essentially be adopted away from David and he will become essentially the Lord's son. And interestingly we find that David's ancestor Joseph of Joseph and Mary a, uh, uh, David's uh, rather descendant, all right, Joseph of uh, Joseph and Mary, was the earthly father of Yeshua, but Yeshua was essentially adopted away by the Lord God as his spiritual son. But we also have to understand the biblical relationship based on the Middle Eastern cultural relationship between a father and a son. See, a father's rule is absolute. But at the same time, a father shows great mercy to a son. The son is afforded great privileges by the father. But the son also has great duties and obligations in return. So since Yehovah will be the father of David's son then that son who's ruling Israel will be under God's personal authority. The son will be ruling in his father's name and his father will not be David but rather the Lord himself. Just as Joseph will not be the father of Ephraim and Manasseh but rather it would be Jacob. Now look, All kings of Israel were beholden to God as their sovereign. But this promise that David's ruling sons would be as sons to God and God would be as their father is a major step beyond mere royal dynastic loyalty to the God of Israel and vice versa. It was always that God was to be the heavenly king and Israel's monarch was to be the earthly counterpart over the nation of Israel. Israel's king was indeed king. But God was the king's king. 
That is still not the same thing by far as a father-son relationship. A father-son relationship is intimate. It involves a far greater degree of love than a king over a king. That's more of a vassal relationship. Thus Israel's first two kings, Shaul and then Ishbosheth, were legitimate kings over Israel and they were theoretically loyal to Israel's God and Israel's God was their heavenly king. But with David, an entire new relationship was created. A father and son relationship. Or better, with David's son, a new relationship would be created. Thus the Lord pronounces in verse 14 that if David's son, the next king, does something wrong, what is doing something wrong? Breaking the law of Moses. Indeed, that king can expect to be punished, just as any king of Israel would expect to have bad things happen to him if he rebels against God. However, the Lord guarantees that that son of David will never, he will never, lose God's grace and he will never be punished unto destruction. This is to be contrasted with King Saul who was given no such promise. And thus when he was rebellious as a rebellious vassal to the powerful king above him, God removed his grace from him. And so far as we know, Shaul was punished to eternal destruction. But this also says something else that is at once apparent to those ancient Hebrews, but not so apparent to a modern Westerner. If the king is punished unto death, and God has removed himself from that king, that's also the end of that king's dynasty. Thus, when Saul rebelled, and then God took his grace away from him, Saul's son would take control from a, from a human political standpoint, but he would not be given favor by God as Israel's next king. Grace was not only removed from Saul, but from his possible dynasty. The dynasty of Saul was over forever just as David's dynasty was established forever. David was exceedingly aware of this. And so the Lord promises not to ever do with David's dynasty what he did with Saul's. Oh, there there may be and there were bad kings in David's dynasty, and some of them rebelled and they died as a result. But unlike For Saul's dynasty, David's dynasty would never lose God's favor and have his grace removed from him. So, what happened with David's dynasty? Well, the last king of David's dynasty was Zedekiah. And he ruled from 596 to 586 BC. He was an evil king that was actually appointed by Nebuchadnezzar so that the people of Judah really never accepted him. There would be no more kings 
from David's dynasty, or so it appeared, after Zedekiah. After six centuries passed from Zedekiah's death, and no king of Judah rose up to assume the throne, the Jews of kings, King Herod's day longed for a miracle that somehow another member of David's family would arrive and lead Israel out of this Roman oppression into a never-ending golden age that they thought of as the kingdom of God. They called that hoped-for king of the Davidic dynasty the Messiah. Other Israelites, including most of the religious leadership, had given up hope for a direct descendant of David, and they were more than satisfied if this deliverer and future king who came along was simply Jewish. Somebody from the tribe of Judah, which was indeed David's tribe, but not his line. Naturally, such a king would come about at their appointment, and they would be that king's royal court and closest advisors. God didn't forget His promise to David, even though 600 years had passed since the last of David's dynasty, Zedekiah, had ruled. Out of the line of David, through Joseph and Mary, was born Yeshua of Nazareth. But He was brought into this world in a most unexpected way. He didn't play the role of an earthly warrior king, and so he was rejected by most Jews, and especially the Jewish religious leadership. Well, verse 16 speaks of the forever nature of David's dynasty, kingdom, and rulership. The son and father relationship between David's ruling sons and Yehovah is also pronounced as being forever. And of course, we can rest assured that the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy is Jesus. And here is but one passage in the New Testament that not only tells us that, but also makes again this this connection between this father-son promise Jehovah made to David here in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and the Christ who would come a thousand years later. Don't turn there, I'm just going to read for you Luke 1, verses 30 to 33. You'll recognize this. And the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Look, you will become pregnant. You will give birth to a son, and you are to, you are to name him Yeshua. He will be great. He will be called Son of Ha Elyon. Adonai, God, will give him the throne of his forefather, David. And he will rule the house of Jacob forever. There will be no end to his kingdom. In verse 18, after Nathan has given God's oracle to Israel's king, David goes to the tent and he sits before the ark probably with a curtain between David and the ark. And he pours out his humility before the Lord. 
and he asks the rhetorical question, why did you choose to give to me of all people such honors? And he goes on to acknowledge that he understands and he believes God. He believes that God will establish David's dynasty forever. It is plain that David understands the cosmic, the the otherworldly nature of this promise. All kings hoped that their dynasties would be forever. But they also understood that in reality, the hope was that their family would rule for several generations. These earthly kings knew that in time conditions would change and it was inevitable that another family would eventually rule. So the game was to keep hold of that throne as long as possible. David sensed deeply in his soul that this was not what God meant by saying forever. God's forever is not man's forever. Man's forever is by its nature temporal and temporary. God's forever is by its nature permanent and eternal. This leads us to verse 19 where David makes a statement that I think has a very deep underlying meaning. But its plain meaning is also greatly disputed by Bible scholars. Look at that verse. He says of God's plan to establish through David's son his dynasty forever, he says this, This is indeed a teaching for a man. The problem is that the Hebrew says, This is indeed a Torah for an Adam. The great Hebrew sages argue among themselves whether the word Adam, Adam, is meant to be a proper name, in other words, the Adam of Adam and Eve, or whether it's to be considered as a general term, meaning man or mankind. The issue for me is the context. If one sees these passages we've been studying, as merely a political scenario whereby the goal is to make the legal case that David's family are the rightful heirs to the throne of Israel in perpetuity, that's one thing. But if one sees these passages from the spiritual side, then it is obvious that this difficult statement by David is is messianic in nature. Yet, just how spiritual are we to take this? From the Hebrew viewpoint, since they do not see the divine nature of the Messiah, then the word Adam merely means man, because they fully expect a regular, everyday man, even though he'll be a great leader to be their Messiah. But, if we do see the Messiah as incorporating the divine nature, then I don't know how to see the word Adam Adam, as anything but the proper name of Adam. In other words, the Christ is a new Adam. 
and this is generally agreed to by the church as a proper, proper characterization of him. And the Torah, the teaching about this new Adam is he will come from David's dynasty and rule on into eternity. So again, as David is praying before the ark in the tent of the city of David, he says to God in response to this awesome, this nearly unfathomable revelation that a descendant of David will rule over God's kingdom eternally, this indeed is a teaching for an Adam. I have no doubt that David gets it, that a new Adam is coming, that he will be from David's bloodline, and that this new Adam will have dominion over the earth in a way that the first Adam could never have imagined or accomplished. But let's also be clear, David could not have possibly developed such a mental picture as this. I mean, how such a thing could be isn't imaginable. David just believed God. And he took his word at it. This is why David was so great in God's eyes. It wasn't because David's behavior was always proper. I mean, he broke the law in some of the most egregious ways. Rather, it was that David trusted God to a depth that most of us can't even envision. Verses 21 and 25 also offer us some intriguing double meanings that that often occur in prophecy. Again, it's not either or, but rather both. And it revolves around the word, word, the bar in Hebrew. David prays, to Yehovah, and I'm paraphrasing this, okay, now that you've made this decision, God, and you've communicated it to me, then, in verse 21, I understand it's not for my sake, but for the sake of your word that you are doing this. And in verse 25, David continues by agreeing with God in saying, please establish your word and do it forever. Now, no doubt, on one level, word is speaking about the oracle itself that was delivered through Natan to David. Yet on another level, we know that from a theological and messianic perspective, from John 1, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. Therefore, what is also being said, although I have no doubt that David even comprehended this, was that God has made this promise to David not for David's sake, but for the sake of the coming Messiah, the Son of God, Yeshua, who is the Word. And that David next says, prophetically and to a a degree unknowingly, please, Establish Messiah, the Son of God, Yeshua, your word forever, eternally. So David is pleading with God to establish his dynasty, both 
physically and spiritually, both temporally and eternally. Verse 29 ends this chapter with David closing his prayer by asking the Lord to shower His blessings upon David's family forever. You know, maybe this is how we should all pray. By humbly asking the Lord every day to bless your servant's family with your blessing forever. We'll start chapter 8 next time.